Thanks, Christy. Good morning. Happy Memorial Day to you guys. It's good to see the few of you who aren't camping right now. Yeah, aren't you glad you're in air conditioning or something? This is great. Um, so yeah, Psalm 88. Um, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3, verse 4 says, there is a time to weep. It says, there is a time to weep. There is a time for it. Uh, today, guys, we're ending our short, shoot, super short uh, series in the Psalms called I Feel. Uh, we've walked through various emotions, and we fought to realize that we are emotional beings. God created us that way. And uh, if we listen a little bit better to our emotions, we can learn a whole lot about ourselves. And I thought we should just end it on a high note today and talk about happiness. So um, you guys felt that, right? Um, yeah. No. Uh, by the look of the Psalm 88, that's not it. Uh, we are exploring the emotion of sadness. Uh, really, uh, we're exploring the, the, the place of sorrow in our lives. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said of Psalm 88, he's a famous preacher from the 1800s, when he got to this psalm in Psalm 88, he said this, he says, if ever there was a song of sorrow and a psalm of sadness, this is it. So if there was ever a psalm of sadness or sorrow, this is the one. Uh, I know it's Memorial Day weekend, I know that we live in America in 2018 and we're sitting in a Protestant evangelical church gathering in 2018. So reading Psalm 88 uh, this morning and saying, hey guys, this is our preaching text, it kind of feels like a mistake, like maybe I made a typo or something or an error, because many of us, if we're being honest, our version of Christianity doesn't really have room for a psalm like this, uh, a reality like this. We don't really make space for it. We kind of block it out as much as we can. I mean, Psalm 88, if we're being honest, is kind of one of those chapters that if you were to read it in your own like devotional life or quiet time, you get to the end of it and you're like, uh, maybe I'll read Psalm 89 too, you know? And you go into Psalm 89 and it says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord. And you're like, oh, there it is, right? That's where we should keep going, right? Let's just gloss over it for a moment, okay? I get it. I totally get it. I'm no different than you are. Um, and I feel it too when I read this psalm, but let's not forget that this psalm is actually in our Bibles. Uh, this psalm is a song that people actually sang together, that God's people sang as they gathered together, which just think about that for a second, right? Imagine singing this song in a worship gathering this morning. I'd get a few of those connect cards talking about our worship's too depressing or something, okay? But here it is. It's in God's word. It's profitable. It's sharper than a double-edged sword, but not only is Psalm 88 in our Bibles and therefore worth exploring, you guys, let's just be really honest, let's get really real. Uh, this Psalm fits, doesn't, doesn't fit into our Christian faith very often, but if we're being honest, it's worth exploring because Psalm 88 is not only in our Bibles, but Psalm 88 is in our lives. It's a part of our lives. And you'll find yourself in Psalm 88. Uh, some of you will find yourself in Psalm 88 way more often than others do, and you might even come to the place where you think something's wrong with you. And some of you have maybe never been to a place where you're hearing Psalm 88 and you're like, I don't, I don't connect. But I don't know of many people who've ever gotten through life that don't find themselves in a place like Psalm 88 at one point or another. 
And so let me just say this, that no matter where you're at this morning, uh, there are no spectators to Psalm 88. There are no spectators in this room right now. There are only people who are mourning, there are mourners, and there are companions. There are mourners and there are companions. There are people who are reading this right now and they're saying, this is totally me. Yeah, it feels a little dramatic, but this is totally me. And if it's not you this morning, then you are a companion. You're a companion. You are called into this psalm this morning and you are meant to be a a crying shoulder, a silent presence, a dim light in the darkness that someone's going through to someone who's just stricken with like grief or they're in a plate of just a place of utter depression, okay? Now before we dive in though, more than usual, I think it's actually really helpful uh, to read that little inscription that's underneath uh, the title that your English Bible gave it. Mine says, I cry out day and night before you, but there's something underneath there that's actually in uh, your Hebrew Bibles and it's really important that we get here for a second. It's very helpful for us to read this. Okay, this is a part of God's word. And so we see here, if you look there, this is a song. Okay, I just mentioned that, but it is a song, meaning people literally sang this together. They got together, they sang this. This was on the, the you know, Hebrew people's Spotify playlist, you know. This is what they would sing, right? We see that it was from the sons of Korah, who, who David actually appointed to write music for Israel to sing. So this is the people who kind of wrote it. But then it says that it's a maskil. Right? And this term, you don't probably know what it is, uh, but it, it occurs a lot of times and it indicates an instructive or didactic psalm. That's what it means. Meaning that this song is meant to instruct you, it's meant to teach you something. Specifically, here, this is meant to teach you lessons that, that the sorrows of one person basically are lessons to other people. That's what it's telling you. But finally, it's written by a guy. The, the account is based upon this guy, Haman. It says Haman the Ezraite, okay? So I'm just not gonna lie, okay? All week, I only could read this as He-Man, okay? I know Haman is probably Hebrew, but I grew up as a child in the 80s and 90s and uh, with a superhero actually named He-Man, okay? Who would fight Shredder. So all week, I'm like, man, if this guy could cry, right? If this guy could experience sorrow, then none of us are past this, okay? So some, you guys are all way too young probably for He-Man. But nonetheless, okay, this is a psalm from He-Man, right, based upon his life. This is the author's name. This person was actually going through something. Why I'm bringing this up is to say this is a real person with real issues. This was his real experience, and people would gather together for, to be taught by this person's sadness, and they would do this together, So what is this psalm teaching us? What is it supposed to teach us this morning? I think it it shows us two really important things. It teaches us about the experience of sorrow, and it teaches us about the lifeline that we have in the midst of it. It teaches you about the experience of sorrow and the lifeline that you have in the midst of it. So first, uh, we, we see this, this experience of sorrow, and you see this really in verses three through 18. It's throughout most of the psalm, he's just describing for you what he's going through, and again, this is his perception of what he's going through. He says a bunch of things. He says, my soul is troubled, in verse three, right? He says he's in a place where he feels like he's experiencing death, yet he's somehow living, 
kind of like a zombie, like a, a, a walking, the walking dead of sorts. You see that in verses 3, verses 4, verses 10, verse 15. He says, I have no strength. I'm in a place of utter weakness. And if you read verse 5, because he says he's in a place of, uh, of weakness in verse 4, if you read verse 5, it completely informs the kind of weakness he's experiencing. It says, I'm like one who's set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. He's in a place of utter weakness. But then he goes on, he says, I feel like God is, is against me. In verses six through seven, he says his companions or his friends have abandoned him. You see that in verse eight. He says he feels like he's in, in like a prison of sorts in verse eight, right? That's often, if you, if you get to, into a place of sorrow for a really long time, uh, you're gonna get to a place uh, a lot of people experience called depression, right? And that's very much what depression feels like. It's like a prison. You can't get out of it, even if you wanted to. But then verse nine, he says, uh, my eye grows dim through sorrow. He's talking about his tears. He's crying so much he can barely even see. But then verse 14, he continues on. God has turned on him is how he expresses it. He says in verse 15 that he's been afflicted for a very, very long time, since my youth. This isn't just like a one instant situation this guy's going through. It's been a long time. He says, You've ex I've experienced terrors, verse 15. He feels helpless in verse 15. He feels like he's drowning in verse 17. He is shunned by the one who loves him, the, he loves the most in verse 18. And he says his friends haven't been light to him, they've been darkness, verse 18. Honestly, guys, this is another reason why I love the Bible. Uh, I love it because it shows us that we really don't have to fake it till we make it. Uh, this guy was in pain. Uh, this will be on the screen. Um, C.S. Lewis once said, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say, my tooth is aching, than to say, my heart is broken. And we totally get that. I mean, it's hard to come clean it's hard to say what Haman is saying. He's in such pain, such sorrow, that he expresses this experience in these dramatic ways. Now, you read this, rightfully so, and you go, this is really intense. But, but I think that in your sorrow, we, you can gravitate towards something here. And that's the point. He doesn't tell you what he's going through. He doesn't tell you that so that it resonates with all of us. So there are many descriptions that you might resonate with, and um, this is why this is helpful to us, that it doesn't tell specifically what's happening here. I mean, maybe you resonate with him losing his companion, right? Or maybe you resonate with him just feeling completely weak and lacking strength. Maybe you resonate with his tears or with feeling like you're trapped or you're drowning. Right? These images are really vivid. But this psalm, guys, it shows us that being sad isn't anti-Christian. Being sad isn't anti-Christian. There's not something wrong with you. You might actually be really sane. But you're not a bad Christian if you're in a place like this. You're not a bad Christian if you're in a place of utter sorrow. But out of all these experiences, the one that I really want to address this morning, just because it's very loud and bright before our eyes and you're probably wondering about it, 
is his experience that he's telling you about where he is despairing so much because he says that he feels like God has turned on him. He says that a lot. Now, is, is it wrong for you to talk like this? Is it wrong for you to pray like this? Well, no, it's not. Is it true for you to pray like this? Is it true for you to pray what Haman's praying here? Not necessarily, not necessarily. Again, this is his perception. He's telling you how he feels. This is how he feels. And if we're being honest, we have the tendency in our lives to take how we are feeling, to take the circumstances that surround us, to take the experiences of our lives that we have, and then we turn those things and we project them onto God and say, this is how God is treating me, or this is how God feels about me. So we take our sadness and we say, then God feels this way about me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I, I put it to you this way. We often view God as a thermometer, and we view ourselves and our circumstances as a thermostat. And so whatever is happening to us, whatever is happening to us in our lives, whatever kind of circumstances or sorrow or grief that we're experiencing, we turn those things around and we base God's feelings about us upon that reality. We turn Him into the thermometer. And whether it's my own heart or whether it's my circumstances in the thermostat, but that's not at all we see when you take into the counsel of whole of Scripture. We see that God truly is the thermostat of life. And so if he sets, he sets the tone. And so when He sets the tone, our hearts can remain warm in some sense, no matter what kind of circumstances are going on around us. But here, and when you're in a place of deep and utter sorrow, this is what we often tend to do. We say, God's doing this to me. I feel this way. God feels like He's done this to me. And we're turning Him into that. We're turning him into the thermometer. See, our circumstances and our sorrows, if they are severe enough and if they linger long enough, begin to be the thermostat of our lives. And so he says here, quote, it's the Lord's doing. He says it over and over again. And that's true. But as a pastor, I'm just, I'm just not going to stand here and try to explain away why God would allow such immense sorrow to enter into this man's life or to enter into your life or to enter into my life. That would be really foolish of me to try to assume that. I mean, there are countless whys about life that I will never know and that you will never know and that one day, maybe we will know, but there is some questions that we do know the answer to. We do know in this psalm, especially, and in your sorrow, we do know the who and we know the where kind of questions. We know the who and the where questions when it comes to God. We are promised that God is with us. He doesn't turn his back on us. We saw this in Psalm 23, that God, the good shepherd of our lives, he leads us in straight paths. Remember that? And where does he lead us? Where do those straight paths often take us? It says that it often takes us into the valley of the shadow of death. Right? This, this confuses us, though. It really is confusing to us many times because our goals for our life and God's goals for our life often are not the same thing. We often have very different goals than God has. They're not always the same. Because if I were to tell you, ask you today, set goals for your life, like what do you want to see, 
I would guarantee you that all of us in this room would have removed from that reality of our vision for our lives. We'd have removed from that reality pain. None of us would write pain into that story, right? We all want the absence of it. And we're not saying here that God is writing in pain because He wants you just to experience pain. But when you read a psalm like Psalm 88 and the rest of Scripture in general, we see that God's goals are often accomplished through it. His goals are often accomplished through our sorrow and through our pain. Well, what's God's goal? Well, God's main goal for us in this life, when we read the rest of our Bibles, if you read places like Philippians 1 and Romans 8 and really all over the Bible in many senses, we see that God's goal for each one of you in this room this morning, His goal for me and His goal for you, for every person who ever trusts in Jesus this morning, His goal for you is to make you more and more and more and more and more and more like Jesus, just like His Son, the true human who reflects the image of God. And to refashion you, transform you, and to change you into that image, that process, guys, is often painful. It's often very painful. But He uses the pain of our life to transform us the most. Now, I, I, um, I experience this, I don't know about you, all the time. I definitely don't want to make this about me, um, but this is truly my experience in many ways. Um, I have this, my whole life I've experienced like chronic pain, just it keeps getting worse and worse. And I have this chronic back condition that I live with every day. And so the reality of physical pain is just always a part of my life, okay? And combating that, like years ago I realized I would often get in these places of deep depression. And so I, I don't know how those things often work together, but I'm sure there's some correlation in some regards. But nonetheless, there's a lot of pain, there's many days of deep, darkness or sorrow where I'm reading Psalm 88 and I'm like, this feels like me, right? But see, I I even think about my own life and and I think about this Psalm and I think about the rest of Scripture and I see how God has often used this in my life, used this in my life um, just to to, to try to, in, in some ways, make me more and more like Christ. And the most specific way that I think this is happening is because it's making me very aware every moment by moment, day by day experience of my life, I'm more and more aware of my dependency upon God. I'm more and more aware that, man, I need, I need Jesus to get through this. That every day when I wake up, I'm like, gosh, I feel so weak. God, I need your strength. And so there's days where I really lean into that. Those days are better. There's days I try to do it on my own. Those days are not so good. But moment by moment, I I, I see God using even the pain of my life that I go, why would this even happen? I don't get an answer to the why questions. But I know God is with me, and I know He's using this in many ways to make me more and more like Jesus, and I see Him come through. But then beyond this in our own lives, we see it in the life of Jesus, because look at Hebrews 5, it'll be on the screen. It says this about Jesus, that even it was through pain that Jesus experienced glory, that, that, that Jesus offered up himself as salvation to you. It says in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, to God, right, the Father, but he wasn't saved from death, was he? And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
See how even pain and suffering plays a life in the life of Jesus, the true human, whom we follow. See, the, the truth is, guys, that, that sorrow isn't God abandoning you. It might feel like that. You might feel like Psalm 88, but it's not God abandoning you, but it's actually God speaking to you. It's not the absence of God's word in your life, it's God speaking to you. Uh, C.S. Lewis will be on the screen again. I guess it's C.S. Lewis thing. He says, uh, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And in the midst of your sorrow, if, if you're looking to God in the midst of that, you'll experience this. This is the experience of sorrow. And no one should have to walk through sorrow alone like Haman did. Just being honest. And so I want to be practical with you here for a moment. Uh, a common refrain in this psalm is that this guy, He-Man, right, his friends or his companions have turned their back on him. He, he's, been in, he's been shunned, right? His, his friends have become darkness, he says. That's how the whole thing ends, right? And I think this is a lot like our experiences, isn't it? I mean, because it is honestly very culturally uncomfortable and burdening for us to be around people who are in a place of sorrow, especially like this. We feel bad for them, but we don't want to get too close to them because we don't want them to cramp our style or something, right? To, to ruin what we got going on in some sense. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right? We, we touch and go. We always want to be filled up. We want to be encouraged. We want to hang out with people and go, man, that was awesome. We want to go to like a community group or a gathering or something. We want to leave and be like, man, I feel so good about, you know? Like we always want to like leave and feel filled up. This is our like perception of life. And honestly, that's not a bad desire. That's like a good desire, right? That would be a real gift of life to experience things in that way that you leave and you feel so encouraged, right? But we, we must do better as friends to one another if we are going to be motivated people by the gospel, like, we have to, because those walking through depression or sorrow and despair, guys, they need your presence in their life. You can be a dim light in a dark world to them. And then in individual friendship moments, when you show up, you don't have to fix things. You just don't. You don't have to fix things. You get to be the presence of light in their lives. When it feels like God has abandoned them, you showing up is a constant reminder that God has not. You are an embodiment that God hasn't abandoned them, but God loves them. And so we don't, we don't show up in people's lives, especially if they go through long seasons of sorrow, and we don't eventually say, hey, can you please snap out of it? You're ruining our friendship. Right? We, we, we don't say that. We, we may say, I, I may not understand, but please help me understand. We might not even say that. We may, we may not understand, but we can say, I don't need to understand. I see that you're hurting. I see that you're mourning, and I mourn with you. I mourn with you. Honestly, guys, this is why we don't show up when we just feel like it's convenient for us. I don't want to just show up in your life when it's convenient for me or when I feel like it, or show up to my community group or, or gathering or something like that just when I feel like it's convenient or when I feel that I have needs, right? But I show up consistently. We all should desire to show up consistently because we don't know who will need us. And when we sing songs of lament, 
when you're singing a sad song in a gathering potentially, right? You don't go, hey man, this is way too sad, I'm just not gonna sing it, right? This is ruining my, my, my feeling right now, right? We might not feel like we're lamenting, but we realize that this Christianity thing, guys, it's not just me and God, it's me and God and you and you and you and you and every single person in this room that claims the name of Jesus. And so there's a very great bet that when we gather in a room like this on a Sunday like today, that we realize there are many people in this room that are probably in places of, that are experiencing real deep sorrow when I am not. And their despair might be so deep this morning because they just had a miscarriage or they lost a loved one or, or a companion in their life or a dream this week was, was crushed. And so when we sing laments, we often are singing out, even if you're not lamenting, because we sing for the people who are in such places of despair like Psalm 88 that they can't even open their mouth. When they're in places like that, I open my mouth and I sing on behalf of those people. See, we are family, and when family hurts, we all hurt and we all sing. And we sing on behalf of those who can't open their mouth, and we do this remembering that this was the experience of Jesus. Because in Isaiah 53, it'll be on the screen, he says uh, that he was oppressed, that Jesus was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the sins of God's people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You see, when you think of the life of Jesus, man, our, our sorrow often just pales in comparison to the sorrow of our Savior. He was the man of sorrows. He didn't just perceive Psalm 88 and say, I kind of feel like this. No, he lived it in its fullest. It was truly his experience, and Psalm 88 was his experience so that the sorrow in our lives, when we experience that, we would know that we are not alone, we would know that God is with us, and that we would have a spiritual family walking with us through it because this Psalm teaches us a lesson about sorrow. We sing on the behalf of others. So beyond community, if even if your community has left you, you're like, come on this morning. What is your lifeline? We see the lifeline here in verses 1 and 2 and 9 and 13. It's scattered throughout. It's the bright spot. He says, O Lord my God, or God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Then verse nine, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. And then down in verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer, it comes before you. I just wanna ask you this morning, uh, what do you do in your sorrow? Like, where do you go? Like, what do you see as your comfort or your solution or your need in that moment, right? Where do you turn? Well, here we see that He-Man turns to God. 
right? He is definitely in one of the darkest places that it would seem a human could experience, but he's still holding the lifesaver, right? Not the thing you put in your mouth, but that thing that a lifeguard throws you, right? He's holding the lifesaver, right, as he floats in the water. But it's like his experience is such that, like, as he's floating in the water, there's such deep fog around him that he can't even see if there's boats. He doesn't hear anything, right? And the fog is so thick that he can't see anything. All he's got is this little lifesaver. There's not even a tug on the other end of the line, but he's holding on to it. He's still crying out. He's crying out. He says, what? God of my salvation, I cry out. This is like the only positive lines in the psalm. Like every psalm of lament, which there's lots of them, always end with like, but I will still hope in God. You know, there's always like something, you know? So it's hard to read this. I was like, what do I say, you know? You guys, life is depressing. You're dismissed, you know? Uh, But nonetheless, no, this is it. Like this is what he's got. This is lifeline. This is like the positive thing. This is the hope. Here in verse 1, we see this guy's confidence in prayer. His confidence is what? God is his salvation. It's the, he's the solution. We see his earnestness in prayer. He says, I have cried. I have cried. It's, he's earnest. And then we see his perseverance in prayer. It's day and night, morning by morning, crying out. Right? His experience is that God is not there. That's how it feels. But nonetheless, you see that he knows God is there because he's still crying out to him. He hasn't stopped crying out to God, because it would be ridiculous to cry out to someone that you don't think is there, right? He knows God is there, even though he doesn't feel like God is there. It doesn't feel like it, but he believes that somehow God is there. It's like when you're a kid, and you're lying in your room at night, and it's dark, and, and you, you hear something. This happened in our house last night, right? Unless you're just like one of the 1% brave souls as a kid who's never scared of anything, what happens? You hear a creaking on the floorboards, and you go, What? what do you say? Mom, dad, like you yell out, right? You don't go, let me go explore, you know? Like maybe a few of you do, but we don't just get out of our bed and go explore, right? We, we don't go and ask, you know, we don't call for our neighbors. We don't call for our siblings, right? We call for mom and dad. We see them as the only solution to our problem in that moment, right? We cry out for mom and dad. In the same way, what you cry out for in your sorrow, guys, it reveals what you view as the solution to your pain. When you're in the midst of your sorrow, what you're crying out for, it's revealing what you think is the solution to your pain. And so it appears there is no glimmer of hope here, but it's actually in what Himan is doing that shows this glimmer of hope. His mouth isn't closed, it's very much open, it's crying, yes, but it's open, and we can't miss out that he is crying out to God. He's not crying out to change circumstances. He's crying out to God. And he knows deep down in his bones that the depression or the despair of his heart can only be soothed. It can only be helped by God. That redemption from this grave that he feels like he's in will only come through God. This is why I asked you, where do you go in your sorrow? Maybe you go nowhere. Maybe you're just paralyzed. You're just without hope. Life feels like a crapshoot. And you maybe, and honestly, if you battle depression, this is how it feels sometimes. Maybe you go to anything that will just let you escape your sorrow for a moment. I mean, honestly, it could be something as practical as like your phone, another type of screen, a substance, a bottle, vacation, right? 
But once the, the high is over, the film is over, you have to come back from your vacation, right? The, the sorrow is still there. See, we live in a world and a time where we are impatient, we wanna fix things immediately. We want to feel the least amount of pain for the shortest amount of time as possible. And so when pain or sorrow comes, we try to get rid of it as quickly as we can. And so we might experience the loss of a loved one, and so what do we do? We just go find another person that we can wrap ourselves up into to get us through. But what is, what is Haman doing? What he's doing actually feels really foolish to us. We don't coach people in this. Because in the midst of his darkness, he doesn't seem to be running anywhere else. He's just waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting on God. He's trusting. He's waiting. He's crying out, and then he's waiting. And he's not going anywhere else because he has faith that grounds him in this moment to the place where he knows that going elsewhere won't save him because he says, God is my salvation. He's my solution. I'm waiting for him. He was singing uh, the song, Jesus Paid It All, long before it was ever written. You know that line, if you were saying it? As I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, what? Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. And find in me your all in all. I already mentioned to you Charles Spurgeon. I've found a lot of help from his life. He battled tons of sorrow and depression most of his life. When he's 22, just like a year into preaching, thousands, I mean, he was like the first megachurch pastor. It was, he lived in the 1800s in London. Thousands of people would gather here and preach. One day, there was even a thousand people just outside trying to listen in. They didn't have sound systems back then, okay? They're trying to hear him preach, and some prankster gets up in the middle of a six o'clock service and yells, fire, fire, the building is falling. And people start freaking out. And they're like trampling each other. There was like 20 some people who were injured and seven people died. And he like just, that just killed him. He's like, what in the world? Why God, why would this even happen? I'm like doing your work. Like he almost dropped out of ministry like a year into it. And then if you continue on with his life, he experienced so much other sorrow. His wife died when he wasn't that old. He experienced a ton of pain and a ton of sorrow. And he said this, I think he's, he's, he's embodying for you what this lifeline is here in this Psalm 88. He says, this will be on the screen, he says, I am the subject of depression that's so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. But I always get back again by this. I know that I trust Christ. I have no reliance but in him, and if he fails, then I will fail with him. But if he does not, I will not. Because he lives, I shall live also, and I spring to my legs again, and I fight with my depression of spirit, and I get the victory through it, and so you may do, and so you must, for there is no other way of escaping it. God is my salvation. That's what he's saying. See, guys, prayer isn't mental gymnastics. It's not like pie-in-the-sky therapy for your life. Like, oh, it'll just kind of help you a little bit. It's a good ritual or something. No, it's a true and actual crying out to a very real God who is listening and will act even when it feels like he's delaying in your life. He's not ignoring you. And so time and time again, when you read your Bible, you see that in seasons of sorrow, you guys, you're not alone. 
you're in really good company when you read the Bible. Because the people that you read in these pages, sorrow that they experience is often way beyond yours. And yet they cling to God with such faith and hope. They cling to God as their lifeline through those moments. Let me just recall for you, Moses, Numbers 11, he wept before God at the burden of leading the Israelites, and he said to God, God, kill me. That was Moses. Naomi, this woman had it. Right? She, had, she had troubled history. She was ripped apart from her family at a young age. She lived in this like terrible culture. She married this loser husband, and she had these two boys, uh, miserable and useless. One was literally named useless, okay? Uh, she said, my life is worth nothing. Things are far more bitter for me than you because God has raised his fist at me. Right? Hannah, 1 Samuel, she constantly wept and she wouldn't even eat. So she wept bitterly because she couldn't have kids. David wrote a ton of Psalms, right? And they're not all pleasant. And he was a giant killer. He like killed giants, right? I mean, who in this room has killed a giant? Maybe some of you had in a video game or something, but no one's really killed a giant, right? I mean, David, he was like the real He-Man, right? And even him, Elijah, 1 Kings 19, Job, the entire book, Jonah, Jeremiah, his whole life, right? Even Solomon, the great Solomon with all the wealth and wisdom in the world, he says, I hated life. Forget it all. It's all worthless. He says, I got the money. I got the status. I couldn't fix my sorrow. 2 Corinthians, Paul says he was so burdened beyond strength that he despaired of life itself. Guys, all these people, they see themselves in the grave. They see themselves in verse 10. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? All these people, they see themselves there. Yet they clung to God in faith and in prayer, and we certainly should. It's not mental gymnastics. It's rock-solid hope. Because we know that when Jesus was filled with sorrow, we know that when Jesus went through the valley of the shadow of death, that when he laid in the pit of the grave, the actual grave, not a not a grave that just feels like it's a grave. He actually laid in the grave. These questions were raised. Do you work wonders for the dead? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? These questions were asked when he was in those graves. These questions were asked and they were definitively answered, were they not? And we look back to the moment of resurrection and we see that yes, God does work wonders in the literal grave. He does save in the darkness, which is what the question is here. And because God worked wonders in the grave of Jesus, we know that even when it seems like we're in the grave and wonders will never come our way and we're looking around at the rest of life and we're seeing everybody else feel like they're winning and that you're losing, when it feels like that, we can look with surety on the fact that we know that a day is coming. A day is drawing nearer than it was yesterday. That's for sure. And every day is a nearer to that day. Because Jesus was departed. He was forgotten. And he had the Father hide his face from him. It didn't just feel like it, it actually happened. So that when you and I enter into reality that forever will give us the absence of pain, we will get there someday, or there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sorrow. 
ever. Only joy. See, these questions of sorrow are answered with an emphatic yes for you this morning. These verses 10 through 12 questions, there's an emphatic yes to them. It may not be today. It may be tomorrow. It could be down the road. Or it might be the day you see Jesus face to face. But we know that answers are an emphatic yes in our lives to these questions because they were an emphatic yes for Jesus. And so today when we find ourselves in Psalm 88, you guys, we're not without hope because Jesus couldn't only resonate with Psalm 88, he literally went through it. And so now we we can walk shoulder to shoulder with each other this morning and we don't just say, hey, you're kind of killing my vibe. No, we mourn with those who mourn, but as we mourn, we declare to our sorrow that our sorrow's days are numbered. And I share that with you. We say to our sorrow, one day, guys, I will dance on streets of gold with joy and fulfillment and happiness because Jesus crushed my despair. So you don't have to fake it till you make it. It's hard to say, like C.S. Lewis said, it's hard to say my heart is broken. But you have one, you have the one who was broken for you so that your broken heart can be whole again someday. And we have a bunch of broken people in this room who are hobbling along, but we hobble along together towards the day when there will be no more hobbling, there'll be no more brokenheartedness, but we'll all be whole again. Amen? Lord Jesus, uh, we...